When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they... I felt it felt right. I felt so And I just thought, well... I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. I'm your host, Erin Barker, and today's theme is tenacity. I'm thinking a lot about tenacity as we enter into the lucky 13th year of Story Collider. It has required a lot of tenacity, especially these past few years, on the part of our team and all of our storytellers and partners I want to thank all of our listeners and everyone who has attended a show over the years or told a story and everyone who has supported our work. Many of you probably know that the Story Collider is a nonprofit organization. Our mission is to reveal the vibrant role of science in all of our lives through the art of personal storytelling. I hope that as you have listened to these stories over the years, it has inspired you to recognize and celebrate the science in your own life and that these stories have touched you or moved you in some way or made you laugh or inspired you. If they have, I hope you will find it in your heart to share the Story Collider with someone or write us a five-star review or pitch your own story at storycollider.org submissions or donate at storycollider.org donate. Each one of these things makes a big difference and helps us share true personal stories about science with more people around the world. All right. With all of that said, today, as I mentioned, we're bringing you two stories about tenacity in science. Science sometimes requires dedication, even when things get hard. In the stories we're sharing today, both of our storytellers have to find a way to move forward despite adversity. Our first story is from Emily Darling. It was recorded May 2020 at Paminar in Toronto. The theme that night was perspective. Hi, everyone. So I am an eternal optimist. I am such an optimist that I moved to an island and bought a sailboat to live on, and I do not sail. I am such an optimist that I do all of my text messages by voice dictation, and I don't even check them, I just send them. And so you can imagine my shock, surprise, and slight panic when I realized a few months ago that I had lost all hope. Now, before I panicked too much about this sinking feeling in my chest, I thought about when I, when all of us were in school and the advice was, well, where did you last see it? So I started thinking about the last few years that we've all been through. And I started thinking about pandemics and lockdowns and illness and death. And I started thinking about wars and suffering. And I started thinking about racism and injustice. And I started thinking about every single climate report that has come out calling for urgent action. And there has been no action whatsoever. 
So I started to think there might be a few places I could have lost it, <laughs> but I, I was gonna just keep searching. It would be there somewhere. So at this time, even my car was depressed and needed a new transmission. And so I found myself at my friend's dining room table waiting for a call from the mechanic. And I was surrounded by my friend's kids' daycare paintings. They were colorful and cheerful, and I felt so much more like the gray and glumly melting skating rink outside the window after a really long, hard winter. So I was aimlessly flicking through my emails, and I see one that I wish I hadn't seen. It says, interview request today, NPR. And it was a woman named Lauren, and she was wondering if she could get an expert comment about a coral bleaching event from climate change on Australia's Great Barrier Reef. It was bleaching again. And I just felt my heart sank. I'd seen the news headlines, but I hadn't clicked on them. It was just too much. Between the pandemics and the wars and the suffering, I just couldn't understand that this was going to be happening to my corals as well. It was a pandemic, and I hadn't seen a coral reef in two years. I'd been here in Canada, and I'd just been hoping in my heart that my corals had been doing fine. And this headline was saying that they were not fine, that they were exhausted, that they were tired, that they had had enough, just like me. And so I closed my computer, and I looked away, and I thought, she's never going to know if I actually read the email, right? <laughs> and, and then I started to feel guilty. I'm a coral reef ecologist. I've spent thousands of hours underwater. I study climate change, and I've been literally trained as a science communicator. And so what they tell you in science communicator school is that you have to call the reporters back, <laughs> especially if it's NPR. And so that's how I found myself on a phone call with a reporter from NPR. And Lauren is, is really lovely and probably has no idea what she's getting herself into. And so she asks, uh, you know, with this bleaching event, with this stressful climate change event on Australia's Great Barrier Reef, they've been bleaching for the fourth time in six years. This is back to back. Is this bad? <laughs> and I go, Lauren, it's really fucking bad. <laughs> and I say, corals are slow growing, upside down, tiny jellyfish. They need years. They need decades to recover. And they are getting hit back to back by this bleaching event. They are not doing okay. No one is okay with this. <laughs> and she was very professional and so didn't seem too taken aback that her interview was going off the rails. And so she, she carried on. She asked, you know, I've heard that this is a cooler period. This is a La Nina. And typically, these bleaching happens, bleaching happens during an El Nino, a warmer period. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, Lauren, <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> the La Ninas are the only time that corals have to recover. This is supposed to be their window where they can struggle through, where they can recover, where they have a chance. And climate change is so bad <laughs> that even the cooler periods are making them bleach and die. This is, none of this is good. And so I'm just starting to have an out-of-body experience hearing myself tell her this. And I remembered that I'm usually an optimist. This is not how I normally give interviews. And I knew I shouldn't have called her. <laughs> and I should never be trusted to call a reporter again. And what was I going to do? And I was starting to have an existential crisis. And what I really should have been worried about, what I should have been terrified about, 
was her next question. And it was, so tell me why you have hope for coral reefs. And I just froze. I just stared into the Zoom call blankly, like a deer in a headlight, and I had no answer for her. And I started to think, I have to have an answer. In science communication class, they say you have to have an answer. It has to be positive. You have to end on something hopeful. And I tried to think of anything hopeful, and I couldn't. And I tried to remember, I'm sure I've answered this question before. <laughs> Do I have any idea what I said? Maybe I can just pull that up. And I started, and I, I couldn't think of what I said, and I started to reach deep down, looking for any fumes of optimism I might have had. And I was just coming up blank. And so as I start to panic and I start to freeze, I'm suddenly somewhere else. I'm suddenly on one of my first dives underwater on a coral reef. It's in northern Mozambique, and I'm a brand new graduate student, and it turns out that I'm underwater on the pages of a National Geographic magazine. There are pink and purple and blue corals, healthy, stretching as far as I can see. They have clouds of turquoise fish who are just breathing in and out with the waves around these corals, and it was just magical. And I remembered thinking as a new graduate student who had actually read the scientific literature back then that uh, these corals weren't supposed to be here. They were supposed to have died during the 1998 bleaching event, and yet here they were. They had been connected to nature's air conditioning, cooler, deeper waters that had, had they'd survived, that had protected them. And then suddenly, I am somewhere else while I'm remembering this. I am off the island of Sipadan in Malaysian Borneo. I'm on an oceanic volcano that rises from the depths of the ocean. I'm flipping backwards off a boat with my scuba tank, and I'm falling into a tornado of silvery barracuda. There are sharks lazily patrolling this coral reef. The coral reefs are large. They are happy. They have their little tentacles out, loving life, and so am I. And I think, why is this reef here? And this reef is here because it's a marine park. The government of Malaysia and local communities have decided to come together and protect this place. And so it's still here. And then suddenly I'm in one last place, I'm off. I'm in a reef on, in Fiji, and it's feeling a little bit more like how I'm feeling right now. It's dark, and it's brown, and I really wish I wasn't there. And I'm doing a survey of coral reef health in the mouth of a river, and all this pollution is coming onto the reef. And so I've finished my survey, and I'm ready to get out of there. The corals are just really sad. Their tentacles are out, sort of hanging off them, trying to get some kind of food. There's no sunlight, so they're starving to death. I half-heartedly like half fan my hand over some corals. It lifts the sediment that's choking them off, and then I look and it just falls right back on them. It's hopeless. I'm, I'm ready to go. And I'm also ready not to be eaten by a bull shark, which particularly likes those kind of reefs. So I'm out of there. And on my way out of there, back to the boat, uh, I see a flash of golden blue, and I turn to look, and at that moment, the sun streams through the reef and, and has a spotlight on this little tiny damselfish. And he's got a sequined crown around his eyes of gold fins and, and, uh, and gold uh, fish scales, and he's got a bright blue body, and he's dancing around the reef. And what he's doing is he's farming his little patch of turf algae 
and this is his life. So he eats the turf algae, and if the turf algae gets covered in sand and sediment, then he is not happy. And so he's dancing, and he's moving the sand off, and he's doing a much better job than I did. And then he's turning, and he's plucking the sand with his mouth, and he's spitting it out, and I'm just mesmerized. I mean, he is really trying. He is living life, and he has a shitty reef to do it on. And I thought, if he's not giving up, then who am I to give up? And if he is trying so hard, then who am I not to try hard? And suddenly I'm back in the interview and poor Lauren <laughs> has been sitting there for several minutes and asks, I'm sorry, is the connection okay? I was asking. And I said, Lauren, let me tell you about how much hope I have for coral reefs. And suddenly out of my mouth, I'm blurting out these stories about the corals in northern Mozambique who shouldn't be there, but they survived climate change. And I'm telling her about the corals and the sharks in, Nor in Malaysia where people had come together to protect these reefs. And I'm telling her about the little tiny damselfish who against all the odds was not giving up and if he wasn't giving up then I wasn't going to give up and no one should give up on coral reefs. And I, I couldn't believe the words coming out of my mouth. I don't think Lauren could either. And suddenly we both just had this hope again for coral reefs. Nature is plucky and resilient, I was telling her, and if we give it a chance, they can survive. We have to do better, but there is still so much hope out there. And then I hung up, and I thought, in the space of this conversation, I'd found my hope back, and I didn't think I'd be able to. And I'm really pleased to tell you that I still have it today. Thank you. Was Emily Darling. Emily is the director of coral reef conservation at the Wildlife Conservation Society, where she leads global coral reef conservation and science programs connecting conservation impact across the Western Indian Ocean, Indonesia, Melanesia, and the Caribbean. She's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Toronto. Emily's research investigates how tropical coral reefs are changing in the face of our climate crisis and the role of climate refuges in local community management and global conservation. All right, before we continue with today's episode, a couple reminders. We have lots of shows coming up indoors and outdoors this summer in places like Winter Harbor, Maine, New York, Vancouver, Toronto, and more. You can check out storyclider.org shows for more information. We also have our very first show that's completely en espanol coming up at the Bacantico Center in Tarrytown, New York on July 13th. If you are a Spanish-speaking science story fan, you won't want to miss this or the lovely reception afterwards. If you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storyclider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. Find out more at storyclider.org education. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storyclider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. 
Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our second story today is from James Gordon. It was recorded in May 2022 at the International Museum of Surgical Science in Chicago. The theme that night was Bounce Back. I have got Angelo Bronte tied up in the boat with the rest of my cohorts, and we are in the chute. There are more of them than there are us. And all of a sudden, I hear my phone buzzing. And I don't answer the phone when I'm playing PlayStation, when I'm playing especially Red Dead Redemption 2. Because <laughs> this firefight is going on, and we're ducking them, losing guys, and when they're losing guys, and the phone just keeps buzzing. I'm like, shit. And I pause the game. It's from my daughter. Everything stops for the daughter. And she says, Dad, this is exactly what I'm having done. A cardiac catheterization, that's the first step. With balloon dilation, that's the second step. Or an implant of the pulmonary valve transcatheter. Worse case scenario. Out of everything in that text message, the only thing I understood was worse case scenario. As if on cue, the daughter calls. Dad. I know I may have confused you about what was going on, but this is what's happening. They're going to take the tube, and, and she goes through, and I said, wait, my child teaches special ed. I didn't know she took a minor in medicine, because she's explaining the heck, and we're on dual, because it's May 25th, 2020. We're in the midst of a pandemic. My daughter, because of her heart condition, she was born without a valve. So every few years as she grows, she has to have a shunt implanted. The problem is, as she grows older, the shunts have become less and less effective, making an entirely new heart necessary. So we have kept ourselves spaced. She's a grown woman, of course, has her own condo and such. She loves to tell me, Dad, I'm grown. And she is. And we're on duel every day. And she's going through and explaining this to me. And she says, Dad, on May 28th, we've got a Zoom meeting with the specialist. And I said, okay. She says, are you going to be there? And I, I give my daughter this look through the phone. <laughs> and because it's my daughter, I don't tell her what I'm actually thinking in my head. But I'll tell y'all, where the fuck else am I going to be, sweets, sweets? is my nickname I have given my daughter. Her name is Morgan, but Sweets is what I've always called her. And she says, I know, Dad. I know you'll be there. I was just playing. The morning of May 28th, my daughter calls me. Dad, I'm on my way to the, the meeting because she's there with her mom and 
I'll be on Zoom with the rest of the relatives. And, but look at this. And it says that the doctor who's going to perform the surgery had been sued for $12 million. And she says, because my child is grown, Dad, we got to ask him about this. And I said, yeah, I, I guess we do have to ask him about that, sweets. And we go in there, and the meeting starts. And the first thing she asked him, said, hey, you, you, you were in the midst of this lawsuit. What happened? And he explained that the child was a 10-year-old boy. His heart during the uh, surgery had exploded. And there was nothing he can do. But of course, there are lawsuits and they prepare for stuff like that. And we were like, okay, it is. And so we're going through and he, the doctor is almost, if you've ever seen the Twilight Zone, he reminds me of Rod Serling. And the next thing he's about to say, he says, you are a remarkable young woman. Something we all know. He says, I don't see how you're even walking around. In 18 years of medicine, yours is the worst heart I have ever seen. My daughter, being a bit cocky, I don't know where she got that from, but <laughs> she says, I'm just built tough like that. My daughter could barely walk down a block at that time without pausing and catching her breath but yet somehow or another found the will to go in and teach special ed kids. She said, I can't let my kids down, Dad, until one day she just couldn't make it out of the house. And she, of course, she had to resign, retire, whatever you want to call it. And here we are, and the doctor's saying these things, and he says, okay, we've done everything. You're scheduled for June 1st. Are there any more questions? And my daughter says, yeah, one more question. And she asked him, Doc, if I die, Will I feel anything? Now, as I told you earlier, all of the relatives and everybody are on this Zoom call, and they immediately start logging off, because they just got the shit shocked out of them. Like, oh, no, die. No, nobody wants to. No, 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 no. And I'm still here. And then the Zoom meeting is over. I immediately call my daughter on door. She's smiling like the Joker, just big grin. And, hey, Dad, it went pretty well, don't you think? I said, yeah. I said, sweet. She says, I know. You want to know why I asked him about dying, right? I said, yeah. She said, Dad, you always taught me to ask the tough questions that nobody else would ask. And it's my life. I want to be in control as much as I can. I forgot to mention my daughter's a badass feminist. Uh, takes no shit off anybody. And I said, all right, I'm with you. June 1st comes, and before she can be fully admitted, she has to take a COVID test and pass. And then she does, and they admit her, and she's on the duel, and she's got her Black Panther uh, Build-A-Bear that I gave her. And she's got there, and she says, Dad, you know what I really want when I get up out of here? I said, what? She said, a corned beef on rye, cut in half, with French fries with mild sauce, and a Coke Zero. I know some of y'all wondering about Coke Zero. It is the shit. I'm telling you. <laughs> Diet Coke is a lie. Coke Zero is the truth. Believe me. And I said, no, we're not going to wait till you get out of there. I'm going to bring it to you. She said, what? I said, I'll see you in a bit. So during 2020, as some people did, I was heavier. It's like 35 pounds heavier. And I put on a hoodie and I tucked. I'm tucking sandwiches and shit I got. So I'm walking in like... <laughs> The freaking visual myself. I had to laugh at that shit myself. 
And I walk in and the security guard looks at me like, okay, dude, like, yeah. And I go up and I sit with my daughter and we have corned beef on rye, cut in half, fries with mouth sauce and drink our Coke Zeros. And we're laughing and talking and talking about the things we're going to do when she comes up out of there. Visiting hours were cut off at 11 p.m. And so I left and I snuck back in. I stayed at 2 a.m. and we were sitting there and just watching some Netflix until the nurse said, you have to go. And I said, okay. And I hugged my daughter, kissed her forehead. I said, I see you soon. She said, I see you soon. And I left. She went in and did the procedure and everything. Her mom was there and came back and told me she was fine. That was the second. The third, they said they had to put her, they had to induce a coma because they had to sort some things out. The balloon that they had placed in it had burst, didn't hold. The valve that they tried to fix, of course, failed. And now we were on step three. I arrived on the fourth and went in the room with her and was talking to her while she was under. Her mom said, okay, it's fine. You can, you can go. I know you've got to film. I said, no. She said, no, I've, you've got to film. I was working on a film at the time. And I was talking to her the next couple of days. And then June 6th, I can't say, hey, you've been here. Let me, I've, I'm, let me come and stay. And I'm there. And the doctor comes. And he says, yeah, um, things aren't going as planned. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said, okay, sure, everything's going to be fine. He comes back 30 minutes later, yeah, you know, I told you before, and now her lungs aren't working, blah, 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 blah. And I said, Doc, do me a favor. The next time you come back out here, if you don't have good news or definitive other news, don't tell me shit. I don't want to hear that. Just do your thing, all right? He says, yes. He goes through the day, and he comes out somewhere around 1045, he says, well, she's holding on, but a lot of her functions are failing. I said, okay. All right. Thank you so much for your diligence and your help. And I sit a little bit longer because I can't move. That night, June 6th, that day, excuse me, the curfew had been instituted. I don't know if a lot of y'all remember that in 2020. Mayor instituted a curfew. I was in violation at that curfew at that point. I didn't give a shit. But currently, I was at uh, our company of Mary in Oakland, so I was safe. And I drove out, and I had this feeling. I'm an optimistic guy. Those people who know me will tell you I'm smiling, laughing, happy, skipping, singing. I can't sing worth a lick, but I tell you, I'm singing, and I'm dancing all the time, and I didn't feel that at that moment. I knew it had gone bad. So I stopped at the 7-Eleven. I got a six-pack of Heineken and a Jameson. And I went home and I started drinking before I fell asleep. I woke up the next morning, called from my daughter's mother, said my daughter had passed away. I howled. I don't know if a man, unless it was a guy, an American werewolf in London or one of those lichens in the underworld movies, I don't know if a man has ever howled, but I did. And I just sort of went into my attic and turned on my video games, and it was just there. It was just... But then I got another call. I said, no, she wasn't gone. She was hanging on. She's come to the hospital. So I go to the hospital, and we spend the day, and she's fighting. I said, oh, shit, this is a, some sort of miracle happened. Oh, my God. She's fighting. 
fighting. There are a bunch of doctors and nurses and they're working feverishly. And I appreciate the hell out of them because we're in the middle of a pandemic. The doctor comes out, it's 5.45 p.m. He said, listen, you might want to go in now. These are our last moments of life. I go in, kiss my daughter on the forehead. I say, I love you. Thank you for being my daughter. I walk down the stairs, I get in the elevator, and I collapse. And in my life, I've never collapsed. I played sports, and I've never collapsed, and I collapsed. And I immediately said, get your ass up. I got up, and I went home. And I went on a Zoom meeting for a film I was supposed to be in. 8.45, I've got two phones, and the one phone I'm on the Zoom call, the other phone rings. It's from the hospital, I already know. The doctor says, mm, I've got to inform you, Morgan has passed away. I said, thank you. He says, I want to tell you, thank you for your cordiality and your professionalism, the way you talk to us and thanked us and what have you. Some people lose it. I said, well, that's what sweets would have wanted. I got off the call and I went back to the Zoom call. But before I went to the Zoom call, I went to the refrigerator. I got two Heinekens out, poured me a triple shot of Jameson and finished the call. I didn't tell my mom or my brother till the next day. From that point forward, Uber Eats and whoever it is, Dash or whatever it is that delivers alcohol, they were my friends. I was VIP members, membership for the next days, which turned into a week and several weeks. And I kept asking myself, did the doctors mess up? And then I said, Lord, did you mess up? And I kept saying, did the doctors mess up? Lord, did you mess up? Did the doctors mess up? Did we, maybe I messed up. Maybe I was a shitty dude and this is my payback. Maybe this is the karma coming in and reaching and taking my daughter away from me. And I'm, and I'm, and I look, and there's her picture, which I've avoided, with a card that she gave me for Father's Day. And I avoided all that shit all the time. And I just, ah, ah, I just scream. And then I read the card to the best father in the world. Thank you for always being there. I'm the worst father in the world right now. Because I had custody of my daughter since the seventh grade. So I was at all the PTA trips, all the shit that moms typically do because moms are the shit I was doing. So we were very close. I was always there no matter what. And here I was failing because I was selfish. And I looked at that card, and I touched it, and I touched that picture, and I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right after that, maybe a couple of days, the moth started virtual slams. And I said, I needed a channel. 
Some of y'all may not know this, but I'm one of the best storytellers walking the planet. <laughs> I have the highest score record in Milwaukee. And I said, I needed this. I needed something to channel. And so I started. I won like seven in a row. And I dedicated everyone to sweets. And I said, this drinking shit is not working. So I cut that back. I didn't stop. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. It's still a pandemic. <laughs> I cut it back. The gym opened back up. I started taking out the anger that I had in the gym. You see it? I mean, you see it? <laughs> I got better. I told my agent I'm back in, put me back in rotation, and I started booking. And I booked the Chicago Med gig and some other stuff. I've come to the realization two years later, as the anniversary of my daughter's ascension comes in a few weeks, my daughter's heart, the physical one, wasn't strong enough to contain her heart, the spiritual one. She always went to the hospital and came back. Every time. This time, she didn't come back in the physical. She came back in me and made me the best man I've ever been in my life. My life. Like it said on the card, the end of the card said, Dad, my life for yours is a thing we said with each other. And that's what has happened. Her life for mine to make it better. Thank you. James Gordon. James is an international award-winning author and poet, champion storyteller, and acclaimed actor. James can be seen on Chicago Med as Kent Taylor, Detective Smiley on Amazon's The G, and P.A. Flanders in Background Extras. The Storyclighter is so grateful to Emily and James for sharing their stories with us. The Storyclighter is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with managing producer Misha Gajewski and senior podcast editor Jun Chen, with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Misha Gajewski and Sarah Mizrui, and by Lily B. and Jitesh Joggi, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Over the next year, I'll be stepping back from hosting the podcast a bit as our managing producer, Misha Gajewski, takes on a bigger role and we hopefully welcome some other voices as well. Don't worry, you will still hear my dulcet tones every now and then. But next week, Misha will be back with stories about bodies. Until then, thanks for listening.
our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.